Good morning. I want to welcome those that are watching online as well. Afraid to navigate what was supposed to be not much snow, and it really wasn't, was it? For those that are visiting us, we're in a series in James. We're in James chapter 2. You can turn there a while. The verses we're focusing on this morning are 21 through 25, 26. And last week, we talked about dead faith or useless faith. And I had to think about the song we just finished, a song that I learned when I was a kid. I have decided to follow Jesus. That song has a lot of implications to it, doesn't it? Because James says, if you decide to follow Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus, then there needs to be works that correspond with that faith if there's going to be an impact in your life and in the lives of the world you live in. See, dead faith will not help you choose joy in the midst of trials. It will not help you when faced with temptations. Dead faith means that God's word is inactive in your life. It means God is inactive. There is no fruit. There is no growth. And so he doesn't just park on dead faith. He talks about dynamic faith. Now here's the principle. You can write this down. The sermon this morning is just one point. Doesn't mean it's going to be any shorter, okay? Just one point. Here it is. It says, faith married to works benefits the Christian life. We've been talking all along about how to grow up, what it means to be mature. And the point that James wants to talk about, all this talk about God's word and all this talk about no partiality, all this talk about no choosing joy in the midst of trials, you have to marry your faith with works if that is going to achieve in your life. And then he gives two illustrations to prove his point. One is a patriarch named Abraham. The other is a prostitute named Rahab. Both individuals are listed in what's often called the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11, where he illustrates about the heroes of faith. But let's look at our text. James 2, verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Anybody here want to be called a friend of God? (laughs) All right then you're going to activate your faith along with works. The word completed in verse 22 means mature, to grow up. And this passage goes back to Genesis chapter 22. And James highlights perhaps one of the biggest trials that Abraham faced. Has nothing to do with salvation. We know in Genesis 15... Just listen to this verse, verse 6. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So the whole thing that Abraham finally accepted God and believed he'd sent a Messiah, and again, he had faith in something that would come, didn't come in his own lifetime. That was counted to him for his salvation. He believed before Christ ever came. 
And it was credited. It was counted. It made him righteous. So this story has nothing to do with salvation, but everything to do with what we call sanctification. Remember last week, sanctification releases us from the power of sin. Now, the trial he faced was with his son. And the story goes that in his old age, God said, listen, I'm going to raise up many generations from you, going to be as broad as the sand of the seas and the stars and the skies. You're going to have a big, big, big family. And of course, they had no kids. But a miracle comes along, and in their 90s, his wife bears a son. His name was Isaac. It was their only son. It was the son of promise. And I'll confess this morning, when I read this story, this story makes no sense to me. Isaac, miracle birth. So why would God tell Abraham to take his only son, the son he promised to him, to take him up to a mountain and sacrifice him? I mean, that's the gist of the story. I mean, what about thou shalt not kill? Oh, wait a minute. That didn't come into play yet. That's later, isn't it? But it had to do with trust. And God was asking Abraham, do you trust me enough to do what I tell you to do, even when it does not make sense? So God says, go to a land in Moriah that I will show you. It's a three-day journey. I want you to sacrifice your only son, the son that you love on a mountain. I will tell you when you get there. Now, have you ever noticed that God often tells us to do something and says, I'll finish the details once you get going. Ever happened to you? (laughs) We'd like all the details up front. We'd like to know the outcome up front. We want to know the end of the story. But God says, listen, take this step. I'm going to lead you. Took three days. Shows him the mountain. He takes his son up. Now, you can imagine the conversation. In fact, we know part of the conversation he had with the son after the two servants. He says, listen, wait here. My son and I are going to go up and sacrifice to God on this mountain. His son says, listen, dad, you know, we've done this before. And I see you have the fire and I see you have the wood. But where's the sacrifice? I mean, what's Abraham supposed to say to his son at that point? And Abraham's response was, the Lord will provide. So they get there. He builds the altar. He binds his son to the altar. He lifts up the knife. And in that moment, God speaks. And when God speaks, Abraham looks up and guess what he sees? He sees a ram caught in a thicket. Imagine that. That God would actually provide something he said he would provide. So Abraham sacrifices the ram. God reaffirms his covenant with Abraham. Abraham names the place the Lord will provide. Now again, that story causes me some consternation because I'm like, why would God do that in the first place? But let me ask you this question. Actually, a series of questions. The first is, do you want to go to the next level in your spiritual faith? Now, of course, all good followers of Jesus says, of course we do. 
The next question, are you willing to trust God and do exactly like he says you should do it when you would rather do your own thing? That's a tougher question, isn't it? Here's what we often do, though. We want to follow Jesus. We want to sing, I've decided to follow Jesus. And instead of living Jesus, we go to Genesis chapter 3. And we do the, well, did God really mean that? Did God really say? You know, I know what God's word says. Now, keep all this in your head because we're going to move to the second illustration. Then I want to make some points here. In verse 24, James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And again, he's talking about the marriage here. He's talking about release from the power of sin. And we talked about last week how, how many Christians live a defeated life because they do not do the faith work thing. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Again, if you're not familiar with the story, it's the battle of Joshua and Jericho. They're going into the promised land, and there's several faith things going on here. First is the fact that God told Joshua one of the worst military strategies we ever heard. Just march around the city. Keep marching around the city. And finally, on the last day, blow the trumpet, and I'll take care of the situation. Second faith thing has to do with Rahab. She received the spies, and she hid them. She was a non-Jew. Jews were the enemies of Jericho. But she heard the story. She paid attention. And you can see in her mind saying, you know, they have something I want. And so she gave them an escape route. Now, when you read the story again, you sit there and say, well, she by faith lied and deceived her own people. Parents, ever tell your kids it's not okay to lie and deceive? And, you know, here's a situation where Rahab rescued and saved. In fact, what the spies said to her, and this is the risk, they said, listen, here's the deal. Since you did this for us, you invite any one of your friends and family into your house And when the walls fall down, your house will stay. By the way, in case you didn't know, you can read Matthew chapter 1 one time, the genealogy of Christ. Whose name do we see in that list? We see Rahab's. James says in verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It is useless. Now you hear me say this often, and this is what James is talking about. He says, we are, we are spiritual beings that happen to have physical bodies. And so James says, let me make this analogy. You attend a funeral. There's a body in the coffin. The body's dead. The spirit's alive. When the spirit separates from the body, the body dies. When you separate your works from your faith, your faith becomes dead. It becomes useless. So James is saying if your faith does not have works, you cannot be spiritually alive. 
To make a modern day analogy, it's like you're a zombie. You might as wear a t-shirt that says zombies for Christ. You're dead, but you're not dead. And you have no one asking you, give me some of what you have in terms of Christ. So James is telling us if you have a spiritually defeated life and not a victorious one, you probably have a deficiency in your faith and your works. In Titus chapter 1 verse 16, it describes these kinds of people. It says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And what James is calling us to is a radically obedient life in the midst of trials, even when those trials do not make sense. He says, I want your undivided attention. And if I tell you to go to a mountain, I want you to go. If I tell you to go up on top of the mountain, sacrifice your son, I want you to do that. I will provide, God says. Do you trust me enough? There's a lot of speculation about Abraham in the story, whether or not he really believed that if he had to sacrifice his son, his son would come back from the dead. I mean, we don't know what was going through his head. We just know by faith, he trusted God. James tells us that God wants a people of action. Now, by the way, have you ever noticed that the people of action never get it quite right? (laughs) And that's okay. God is a lot larger than our mistakes. In Titus chapter 3, verse 8, It says, this saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So the trial you face this morning, it may be so high you can't get over it. It may be so low, you can't get under it. It may be so wide, you can't get around it. But God says, I want you to go through it. I don't want you to be a victim. I want you to be more than a conqueror. And so God says to David, teenage kid, there's a giant that I want you to take on for me. My armies are afraid of him. But I want you to be the man. And so David walks out into that field. He takes five stones. What killed Goliath? It's faith. It wasn't the stones. Are you curious why he picked up five stones? If you read later on, you realize Goliath had four brothers. <laughs> so he wasn't expecting to miss. Just in case family showed up. The widow of Zarephath, story in 1 Kings 17. She and her son, due to a famine in the land, there's been no rain. They're down to their last meal. A little bit of oil, a little bit of flour. And when you read the story, she says, listen, I'm going to make my last piece of bread. We're going to eat it. And me and my son are going to lay down. We're going to die. That's how bad they were in. God knocks on the door and says, "Uh, I got other plans for that. I have a prophet coming through. I want you to take what you have. I want you to prepare a meal, and I want you to give it to him. 
And you can imagine this widow who, who longed to feed her son said, God, what are you doing? We don't have enough for ourselves. Why should I give this away to a stranger? I don't know who your prophet is. But she goes ahead and obeys. And that small jug of flour and that small jug of oil, guess what happens? The oil keeps coming. Flour keeps coming. There's enough for the prophet. There's enough for her and her son. In fact, there was enough for her and her son until the day it started to rain. Four hundred and thirty years, Israel was enslaved by Egypt, and God delivers them, and they saw miracle after miracle after miracle. They come to the promised land. Remember, they were the people promised. <laughs> they came to what was it called? The promised land. And they did not go in and possess the land. Why? Here's what they said. It's exactly what God told us it would be. But there's giants and we are like grasshoppers. And because they didn't marry their faith and works, an entire generation missed it. And they wandered in the wilderness. They did not by faith marry their works and take what God had given them. Now, I hope you see where I'm going this morning. I think about the church. The church is the body of Christ. It has been bought and paid for by Christ. Christ is the one who says that when the church is the church, that not even the gates of hell will be able to withstand it. And when I think about the church, what we do not need is people to be limited by what is possible, by what is doable, by what is empirical, verifiable, by what is nice. What we need is a bunch of radical, revolutionary people who by faith believe that God is who he says he is, that God will do what he says he will do, that God will make a way when there is no way. Amen? Amen. I mean, we serve a God who parts the Red Sea. You can amen all these down through, okay? We, can, we serve a God who parts the Red Sea. Amen. Who tears down the walls of Jericho, but saves a prostitute and her family. Amen. I mean, our God is amazing. Amen. But you know what we do? <laughs> no. We see God at work. We read stories of his amazing grace. We claim we believe that God can restore the broken, redeem the lost, heal the wounds of our soul. And then we say, but. Now they do something up in the one Sunday school class. Uh, It's called clean and sober time. And it is just an illustration of where God has moved us from and where we're at today. They're kind of like markers. Abraham on top of the mountain made a marker. It was a monument saying, you know what? I'm not going to forget this for a long, long time. God will provide. And every time I face a situation that seems impossible, I'm going to remember, God will provide. I mean, what's the chance of him looking up and seeing a ram caught by its horns in the thicket? (laughs) That's an amen, by the way. So, clean and sober time. Here's how it goes. They call people out, and they tell them how long they've been clean and sober. James, how long? May 17, 2000. 
Okay, how many years is that now? Six plus, all right, yeah. Your lovely wife next to you. How many? A lot. (laughs) I told you I'm going to pick on you. Where's Ivan? Ivan, how many years? Three months, three years. All right. And your lovely wife beside you. How many, Melinda? All right. You guys are doing this together. Anybody else want to give their clean and sober time? They just let people talk about it. Yeah. I'll have 10 years in August. All right. 10 years. Yes. Who else? Yes. How many? 31. I'm curious. Anybody here less than a week? Raise your hand. Okay, hands are going up. I hope what you see is people who are ahead of you and you know it's possible. And we have some years, we have some decades. And so we come along and we see all this and we say, but. And as soon as we say, but, we take our eyes off God and set them on the problem. Then we magnify the impossibilities. We let go of the promises. We allow fear to keep us from walking into the battlefield and facing the giants. Have you ever noticed, and as a pastor, I get around to a lot of churches. I've noticed that they talk more about their problems than they do their God. They talk more about their challenges than they do Jesus Christ. They talk more about their obstacles than the miracles that are happening. They talk more about betrayals, more about disappointments, and they take their eyes off him, put it into self, and like Peter who gets out of the boat, walks on water, looks at the wave, they start sinking. There's two words that were used of Israel over and over and over again after God delivered them from slavery. You know what the two words were? They complained and they murmured. Trace it out in the Old Testament. God is looking for a group of people who know they can't do it without him. Amen? And it doesn't matter how many assets you have. It doesn't matter how influential we think we are. God is greater than any of us and all of us put together. Amen? In fact, Paul tells us that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above beyond anything we could ever ask, hope, or think. People, here's what James is saying with this whole dynamic faith versus dead faith. He says, God is still God. He is high and exalted. He is sitting on the throne. Jesus is at his right hand, and his spirit is here among us. But by way of implication, he says... You can read and see all the miracles of God going on around you and not even come to know the God of the miracles. And when you do not trust, when you don't marry faith and works, you will die in the wilderness. So my question to you this morning is, do you want a dynamic faith or a dead one? Now, the second question off that is, if you want a dynamic faith is, what are you doing right now that is in direct defiance of his word are you willing to let that go and trust him 
Where's your conversation and focus going to be? The impossibilities of God or the probabilities of us? And I have to think about the vision for this church. Is it God-sized? Or is it us-sized? Is it it built upon what we have? Or is it built upon what he has? (laughs) Do you know the difference? So I have decided to follow Jesus. You need to marry your faith with your works. Amen? I'm going to call the worship team up. We're going to close. Before we do that, if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, now's the day to do that. We'll pair somebody up with you. They'll talk to you. If what's going through your head is, well, I'm not ready. I have this. I got to take care of this. See, when you come to Jesus, you don't say, well, I got to clean something up first. You come to Jesus first, then you work at cleaning your life up. Okay? Heard some amens down here. He knows what I'm talking about. Yeah? So if you're here this morning and want to make that decision, I'm going to have you stand at your feet. Very safe place to do that. And uh, we want to work this out with you. So you're here this morning and would like to accept. I'm going to step back a little bit so I can see. Anybody here just kind of stand to your feet. Okay. Young lady, anyone else? And I'm looking for down here, young man. Anyone else? Keep standing. Stay up. That's it. That's, that's the appropriate response, people. Okay, uh, sir, going to go out in the lobby and meet Greg Schmalhoffers. You will do the same. And Melinda, you going to go with her? Great. And they're going to take and they're going to sit down with you and make this right. Let's give them an expression again of thanks. Now, here's the challenge to the rest of us. This week, let's activate our faith. And let's set our eyes on a God-sized vision for our lives. And not settle for what people tell us, not settle for what we think we can, but let's look at what God's grace can and will do in our lives. Amen? Amen. And when God surprises us, we should say, why are we so surprised? Because this is who he is. He is the Lord who will provide. I want to pray with you guys. Father... Thank you for this morning. I thank you for this young man and this lady as they are willing to step forward. I pray that we surround them, that we pray for them, that we walk with them, that when they fall, we pick them up. And I pray, Lord, that this becomes a place of grace and truth. We know that your word is important. We also know the frailty of our humanity. So teach us, Lord, what it means to walk with each other. Teach us what it means to be gracious in our words. Teach us what it means to choose joy in the midst of our trials. And whether we put ourselves in a class like Abraham or like Rahab, who really was kind of the lowest of her culture, we see what faith and works can do. 
So bless these two that decided this decision this morning. I pray you bless us, Lord, that we leave this place. We look for opportunities to bless other people. And I pray, Lord, that your word and your spirit and your son lead us as a church. And we fill this place with your glory. So when people come in, they can sense your presence. Because it's all about you. We are here to worship to an audience of one. And we pray these things in your name. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand as we worship.